Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Goa Krishnamurthy, Assistant Professor of Law at South Texas College of Law, Houston. We will discuss his article, The Case for the Abolition of Criminal Confessions, which was honored in the AALS 2021 Scholarly Papers Competition. So welcome to the show, Goa. Thanks for having me. This is so awesome. No, I'm I'm delighted to have you on. And I got to say, this paper was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed reading it. And it well deserved the uh, the honor it got from the ALS. That's so nice of you to say. I really, really appreciate it. It means a lot coming from you as well. So by way of starting the interview, I, I wonder if you could tell us, why is it that confessions aren't the best kind of evidence of guilt? I mean, why should we get rid of confessions? So I, uh, in this long paper, I, I really make the argument through really four modalities. And so the first one is just that when you think about confessions from a theoretical perspective, they're really bunk and they just don't have very much probative value. Um, this is really emphasized uh, and reinforced by the practical and empirical evidence that we have. Um, then I next argue that there's really a moral slash due process really concern with confession evidence. And finally, um, that really our doctrine, Miranda, due process, and our evidentiary limitations really do nothing to prevent the serious harms that uh, come from confession evidence. Uh, so you have all these pathologies, you have little probative value that comes from confession evidence. And so I just think we should be done with it. Um, and I'll just start very quickly by giving you the sort of theoretical uh, perspective, and then I think we can go from there. Um, but, you know, basically it comes down to this. When you think about why it is somebody, a defendant, would confess, right, you're led to their rational calculus. You think they're thinking, wow, you know, the case against me is really strong. Uh, you know, I'm facing a really bad sentence. Maybe it's the pressures of that moment of, invest of the interrogation, of the investigation of Jeopardy in general, that's really making them think, it's better for me to confess. And my principal observation is that that's true whether you're innocent or not, right? If you're in that hot seat and you're innocent, you have all the same pressures to confess. And so confession evidence in itself really just tells you that the defendant is in the hot seat. And it doesn't actually tell you whether the defendant did it or not. That's, you got to look to the other evidence for that. And so my point is, just look to the other evidence. What is a confession anyway? I mean, how should we think about confessions as evidence as compared to other kinds of evidence that might come from things that a criminal defendant says? Yeah. So this is a, a really important point here. Um, the paper defines confessions in maybe a sort of narrower way than you might think. Uh, I define the confession as the I did it statement. And so, you know, um, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, other kinds of uh, statements by the defendant that indicate guilt. Maybe, you know, they sort of know where the bodies are buried and, you know, okay, that's really good 
you might think that's really good information uh, in suggesting that the defendant actually committed the crime. But this is really the sort of added, I did it. Now, why is it that I focus on that kind of I did it? Well, you know, the I did it statement is just so potent with jurors. They just care so much about that. It can really just make or break a case. And so I point out that this I did it statement, this sort of additional I did it statement um, on top of any corroborating evidence is very, very potent, but it alone is not that probative. Um, So there is this kind of unique feature of the I did it statement, which is, you know, you might have lots of corroborating evidence. Uh, You have physical evidence, you have all this other kind of stuff. And we have really good ways of, um, you know, determining the truth of that. And jurors are pretty receptive to those kinds of uh, ways of analyzing that evidence. I did it statements are different because jurors are really, really not good at analyzing why, you know, the sort of veracity of an I did it statement. They think, well, they know best, right? The defendant knows best. They're saying that I did it. Let's trust them. But there are lots of reasons that criminal defendants may say, you know, that they did it when they in fact didn't. Well, so in the paper, you give some really interesting examples from different kinds of research about how it is that jurors overvalue uh, confession confessions as evidence in the criminal trial context. I mean, I wonder if you could highlight a couple of those examples for listeners so they better understand just why confession evidence is so dangerous in a criminal uh, criminal prosecution context. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, there are three studies that I think are just really, really uh, great. So there is this one study by Saul Kassen and Neumann that sort of says that you look at, uh, so these are with mock jurors, and they presented a number of, um, you know, sort of bodies of evidence to jurors. And they found that, you know, you could have a sort of body of evidence that included lots of compelling physical evidence, right? You could have, you know, eyewitness testimony, and, you know, you could have a body of evidence that had a confession. And the confessions led to convictions with the jurors just so much of the time, okay? Um, there's another study by Saul Kassin, again, he's sort of the master of this stuff, and Appleby and Hassel, that... Um, presented mock jurors uh, a bunch of different bodies of evidence again, uh, a bunch of, and all of these involved confessions. And some of them were really strongly corroborated. Some of them were just bare I did it's. And some of them were I did it's with countervailing evidence, right? Evidence that was inconsistent with the I did it. And it turned out the conviction rates were basically the same in all of them. So it just tells you that confession evidence is really strong and it's the driving force. And I want to contrast that with a study that tells you something about the realities of of when people confess. Brandon Garrett did this amazing study of um, all the false convictions. And What he did, what makes a study, I think, distinct and so excellent is that he took false convictions that we know of 
and he randomly matched them with other convictions, which we take to be true convictions. You know, we assume they're true convictions. And what he found was if you compare them, you had about in both sets, around 20% of the time, people confess. So false convictions and presumably true convictions, you're getting about the same confession rate amongst the defendants. And this just tells you that kind of, this kind of reaffirms my point to begin with is that, you know, guilty defendants and innocent defendants, when they're in the hot seat, they're in the same hot seat and they have all the same reasons to confess. Well, reading your paper, I mean, I couldn't shake the impression that it's like, oh my God, in a sense, what this is arguing is that we have this like glaring rule for a three problem. Yes, exactly. I think that is exactly right. Um, and, you know, I argue for a sort of categorical abolition, right? But, you know, um, Rule 403, I think, can do the kind of work if it is, um, you know, uh, faithfully administered by judges. So if they say, look, you know, you know if they want to do, if judges in every, you know, particular case want to take into account these considerations I'm pointing to and to say, this is not probative and it's really prejudicial. We got to We got to dump it. Um, that's fine by me. I think that's a great way to handle it. I just think that at the end of the day, if it's not happening most of the time, we've still got a problem, which is why I call for the categorical abolition. We know that judicial discretion um, can, you know, be wonky at times, right? And you'll have these sort of, you know, um, outlier cases. Uh, and I think, well, you know, why brave that? Why not just, you know, embrace the categorical a abolition? In response to that, I mean, I, I can't help but wonder if the observations you make in this paper don't suggest that maybe we should think differently about Rule 403 and what it's trying to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I would say that, you know, in my own sort of opinion, I think that there is a um, there's a sense that juries are really, really quite good at, you know, appreciating rationally various kinds of evidence. And I am not certain that's true. I think maybe we think that because we also are not really great at appreciating the rationality and the rational weight of kinds of evidence. And, you know, we're not good at it. We think, well, the juries are doing basically what we're doing. And, you know, that sort of mistake uh, kind of, you know, um, reverberates. But, you know, I do think that we should be um, in light of, especially, you know, in light of our sort of empirical and data-driven methods to understand what are the weaknesses of juries. Um, I think we should, you know, embrace uh, 403, um, you know, more fully. Um, I will say something, you know, one point I make in this paper, and I think it's, it's sort of really interesting to me, is a lot of times there's a lot of faith in, say, expert evidence, expert evidence on confessions or on patents or on copyright or whatever, you think, well, experts could come in and really inform the jury. And then the jury can be the judge, right? They can really determine, uh, you know, the facts informed by this expert evidence. My own sense 
and this is from some of my litigation experience, um, is that when you have the battle of the experts, uh, it is confounding to juries and it turns out to be a wash. And so juries aren't actually in any better position to do a kind of, you know, rigorous analysis of the evidence when informed by experts, because it, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tsunami of information. They just really can't uh, handle it. And what I noticed was, you know, in this case where people were talking about the prospect of expert evidence informing juries about, you know, the utility of a confession evidence, um, a lot of those empirical studies only included confet um, only included expert evidence from one side that told juries, "Hey, this confession evidence is not great. You know, there are some weaknesses to it." But you think about it in a litigation context, you're going to have it from the other side too, right? That says, "Oh, this confession evidence is great," and then you have to really figure out how that's going to impact juries. How should we think about confessions in relation to interrogations more broadly? I mean, why can't limits on interrogation kind of solve the problem without eliminating confession evidence entirely? Yeah. So great question. Uh, One of, this is one of my, uh, my sort of big concerns about doctrinal solutions to the problems of confession evidence. So we look at the ones that we have, Miranda, due process, voluntariness, limitations, and uh, things of that sort. They're sort of a couple of distinct problems. One is that Miranda can be waived. So a lot of the protections Miranda offers just, you know, they leave, they leave the, the building if, if there's waiver. And if you're able to put a defendant in a position where they are compelled to confess, you might be able to, you might think that you're able to put a defendant in a kind of position to waive and then confess. You know, it's, it's not that big of a step up. With due process voluntariness uh, limitations, my principal problem with this, and this comes with Miranda too, is that there is a excessive focus on uh, the behavior of law enforcement, right? We want to say, well, you know, law enforcement is doing this one thing that's causing the problem. And I think that this is a a misfocus. Um, I think the criminal justice system as a whole, uh, you know, imposes these pressures on defendants to uh, falsely confess, right? Um, It's because of, you know, the problems of mass incarceration, the problems of like mandatory minimums of just huge sentences of, um, you know, biases in the fact finding and trial, uh, you know, processes and also plea bargaining, right? All of this contributes to the kinds of pressures um, that a defendant might feel. When you think back at that rational calculus, you think back to a defendant saying, you know, what are my chances of being convicted? What are the sentences I'm going to face? And, you know, what kinds of pressures am I feeling in this moment? Well, a lot of that is not going to be eliminated by, um, you know, slightly limiting law enforcement behavior. I mean, we need a whole scale, you know, kind of uh, reform to the criminal justice system if we're really to trust confession evidence. 
What what about the relationship between confessions and plea bargaining? I mean, does any of this really matter given that the overwhelming majority of criminal defendants just accept a plea bargain anyway? Should we care about confession evidence? Yeah, so it's a great point. And what my uh, suggestion here is it it's beyond trial, right? So I think we should abolish confessions or their functional equivalents in all criminal proceedings. So if we're talking about plea bargains, right, what I think we have to do is have, um, uh, so what we should do is we should remove from the plea bargain, um, you know, the admission of guilt by the criminal defendant, right? And most importantly, this takes buy-in from judges who are uh, deciding whether to accept pleas or not. Um, judges have to take out of their mind the fact that a defendant is pleading. Uh, instead, they have to look at all the other kinds of evidence that support the plea. They have to focus on that other kind of evidence, and they have to ask themselves whether that evidence uh, supports the conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. And so it takes buy-in from judges to really make this um, this pro- uh, proposal meaningful. Um, but I think, you know, um, judges can do that and uh, they can do it, especially if um, there's appellate review. Well, you talk about this in relation to Alford pleas. I wonder if you could if you could kind of explain what an Alford plea is and how you think that they support the point that you're making. So yes, an Alford plea is a plea in which um, the defendant does not uh, admit guilt, right? And doesn't uh, you know? It can either be that they don't say anything about guilt. Or um, they can, um, you know, in some some situations, they can uh, continue to say, you know, that they reserve their rights to, um, you know, um, uh, maintain their innocence. Um, and what I think, you know, we already have Alfred pleas, and that's basically what I am contemplating here is a sort of Alfred plea uh, kind of system where, um, you know, the plea happens, right? And um, it's sort of expressly for prudential reasons on behalf of the defendant. And um, the uh, the judge who's deciding whether to accept the plea or not, um, essentially, you know, can't take into account that the defendant is, you know, sort of you know, uh, communicating that they are guilty of the crime because they're not doing that in the Alfred plea. And you just, the judges has this independent obligation to make, to make sure that the evidence supporting the conviction, uh, is sufficient. And so we already have the system. That's basically what I think, um, all pleas should look like if we're to really abolish confessions from criminal proceedings. If we took your advice and eliminated confessions as evidence, what would the kind of criminal prosecution or criminal investigation process look like? And, you know, wouldn't that on some level, like kind of hamstring law enforcement? And should we be concerned about that? Or is that something we should be encouraging? 
Yeah. So, you know, when I think about the nuts and bolts of how law enforcement is going to proceed with the case, um, you know, it's not clear to me that very much changes. They're still allowed to interrogate defendants, right? And, um, you know, uh, they can obtain information in that interrogation that is useful to them because of the way I define confessions, I really define it as the I did it. So corroborating information that a defendant might provide is still useful, right? So law enforcement can proceed as, as, you know, um, the same way they have been proceeding. They just don't get to use this particular type of evidence uh, and, and prosecutors don't get to use that evidence in criminal proceedings. Now, so just one quick point, law enforcement may still think that they've obtained an I did it, and that's going to be useful for their own purposes of, you know, determining who to investigate, right? So if they think, well, we have this I did it, and it's pretty strongly corroborated, we're pretty sure that we have our person, well, they can eliminate other kinds of suspects. And so that's still useful to them. Okay, so now we move to the prosecution side. Yes, I think prosecution, prosecutors don't get to use this I did it statement. And um, I have this, uh, you know, I say in the paper, I have this little um, Latin phrase, right? Confessio est regina probationem, uh, which is, you know, uh, confession evidence is, is the queen of proof, right? And uh, so they, they don't get their, um, you know, queen of proof, right? They, they, they lose that chess piece. Um, but um, they, they have other uh, kinds of evidence at their disposal that may be, um, you know, pointed to through uh, interrogation. And um, if it if it does um, limit their ability to prosecute, right? If it does reduce their ability to get convictions, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because I think confession evidence isn't good evidence. So you know, I think we will get better results um, by uh, embracing the abolition of confession evidence. Um, we'll get less convictions. I don't think of that as a bug. I think of that as, uh, you know, a um, as an advantage to this, especially because um, the convictions we do get, I think, will be uh, more truth adaptive. Right? They will. Um, they'll be better ones. Well, so in the paper, you really focus, among other things, in a kind of Bayesian sense, on how juries weigh confession evidence in relation to other evidence, and I think really convincingly point out that juries give it a lot more weight than it's entitled to. But I couldn't help but think that like police and prosecutors do too. And I wonder whether the suggestion you're making wouldn't actually make the investigation and kind of decision whether to prosecute um, process more accurate and informed as well. Yes, I mean, I hope that it would make um, the process more accurate as well. Now, it may not be for reasons that law enforcement or prosecutors buy my argument, okay? So, you know, a lot of prosecutors and law enforcement uh, who have looked at this paper have gotten back to me and said, I don't buy it. I think confession evidence is really great, 
Okay. Um, you know, and they, they kind of rattle off like anecdotes from their life, uh, you know, from their experiences, rational experience. And, um, you know, I'm not here to negate that. Now I have my own concerns about, um, you know, anecdotal evidence marshaled in these ways, but, um, you know, with problems of salience reasoning, etc. but I'm not really here to push against that. I think even if they don't buy, my argument that the evidence is actually not good, we will still get better results because they can't use it. And, you know, what we know is that prosecutors don't like to lose, right? They have very, very high conviction rates. If they don't get their queen of proof, right, they're going to have to develop some rooks and bishops. And, you know, and that means that they're going to have to use and uh, other evidence, they're going to have to develop that other, other evidence. They're going to have to find it. And I think that gets a more truth adaptive system. Also, if uh, defendants don't have a sort of, you know, um, if they don't have this way of pleading out, right? Um, you know, if, if they know, well, in order for this plea to be sustained, the prosecution is going to have to develop this further evidence, we may get less plea bargains. And that might be a good thing for people who are concerned that plea bargains are really resulting in overpunishment. Well, so good. And in closing, I, I wanted to ask you to reflect a little more broadly on what you think this paper and your observations about the relationship between confessions, convictions, and the criminal justice system tells us more broadly about sort of what we're trying to do when we do criminal justice. I mean, like, what are our goals and how do these observations that you're making sort of help us better understand what we want and what we're actually doing? Yeah, I think um, so for me, you know, um, I look at this and I think, look, confession evidence is weak and it is prejudicial and it is leading to um, false convictions and, you know, embracing the Blackstone ratio. Um, that's really anathema. And so, you know, I think of this as a kind of humble solution to uh, trying to tackle this problem that results in lots of false convictions. Um, at the same time, the sort of the epistemologist in me uh, sort of says, well, look, why isn't it that we just, uh, you know, let the evidence in and let informed juries uh, make better determinations, right? Like make the determination and let's inform juries. Let's, you know, make things very clear. And what we'll end up getting is uh, a confession evidence that is truth adaptive. And if it's not worth anything, juries will just, um, they will just disregard it. And what I want to say here is that, you know, I think we should aspire to that, but that takes a lot of other reforms, so it takes reforms of the criminal justice system broadly that don't impose the kinds of pressures on defendants to falsely confess. 
that's, you know, takes sentencing reform. It takes, you know, a radical departure from the carceral state. You know, it takes uh, prosecutors exercising their discretion in different ways, right? You know, there are so many ways to fix that. Um, and it also takes an informed public, right? It takes a public that understands the problems of mass incarceration and, uh, and sentencing and, and um, you know, uh, prosecution. Um, and so, you know, I think of this as a stopgap measure, really, you know, right? Like, you know, the better uh, option, right? The better way of proceeding is to really make a wholesale fix of our criminal justice system. And then confession evidence may be, um, you know, just good evidence to have. I don't think it, it may not be that worthwhile. It may be, but, um, you know, it will be more truth adaptive if the system in, in general is better. So I really think of this as, um, you know, what are we trying to do, right? Well, at least we are trying to get true convictions. And, uh, you know, we want to stop crime, but we want to make sure, as Blackstone tells us, that we're not punishing innocent people. And that's really, really a bitter pill for us. Well, I think that confession, the, the problem of confession evidence kind of, uh, you know, points us to a real solution here, which is, you know, we should get rid of this uh, sort of bad evidence right now, or we should try to make that, you know, currently bad evidence, good evidence, which means, you know, embrace a full reform of the um, carceral and penal systems. Well, Gua, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, this paper was fantastic. I really enjoyed talking to you about it. And I strongly encourage listeners to read the entire paper, which gets obviously into a lot more detail in all of the issues that we talked about. Brian, this was so fantastic. Thank you for having me. I, I love Ipsay Dixit, and uh, I'm just thrilled to be a part of it.
Then darling confess Confess, confess, confess Why don't you confess I wish you'd reveal to me The way that I feel Confess 